The energy transition is a long and winding road, and it needs to be taken step by step. Learn more at SiemensEnergy.com. This is Barron's Live. Each weekday, we bring you live conversations from our newsrooms about what's moving the market right now. On this podcast, we take you inside those conversations, the stories, the ideas, and the stocks to watch so you can invest smarter. Now, let's dial in. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Barron's Live, our daily webcast and podcast. I'm Lauren Rublin, Senior Managing Editor of Barron's. Thanks for joining us today for a look at the markets and the outlook for growth stocks. My guests are Barron's Deputy Editor, Ben Levison, and Dave Fishnowski, a manager of U.S. equities at Bailey Gifford, the Scotland-based investment manager. We'd also like to acknowledge and thank the sponsor of today's program, Nuveen, a global investment manager. You can find out more at nuveen.com. With that, I'd like to welcome Dave and Ben to Barron's Live. Good to have you both on the call today. It's great being here. Excellent. Dave, we always like to start with the guests, the outside guests, that is. And you're elected today. So I want to talk a little bit about the environment for growth stocks. Bailey Gifford is known for investing in growth equities with a long-term horizon, a very long-term horizon, in fact. Yet you would argue that the difference between growth and value investing isn't really a relevant distinction. So perhaps you can explain a little about what you mean by that. Sure. Yep. Thanks, Lauren. The so at Bailey Gifford, the the defining characteristic in our investment philosophy, which which you already touched on, but it's really worth emphasizing, is our time horizon. We're genuinely long term. We're looking at investments for five to ten years or beyond. Um, that's likely something I'll come back to frequently today. We're also okay. genuinely growth, as you mentioned, and the core belief, and and this is why it's it's relevant to the categories around growth and value. The core belief is that the value that the market we participate in is is wonderfully inefficient. That is, over the long term, only a small number of companies drive returns. These companies happen to be growth businesses. So effectively, we look to identify exceptional growth businesses of the future, back them for a very long time. And I emphasize this because the question of growth versus value, just as you said, it's, it's not that relevant to me. I don't have a view on the category of growth stocks. We see great businesses, uh, bottom-up um, businesses that happen to be great growth businesses, regardless of the environment we're in. So things that'll work, even if the growth category might not be. So explain to me how you approach the search for a Bailey Gifford type stock. Sure. Uh, the let's see, with our time horizon um, as the starting point, and the premise that only a select few number of companies drive the vast bulk of wealth creation. We seek outliers and outliers that might take a long time to gestate and, and become amazing businesses. So when, when personally, when I look for growth businesses, I look for change in a system. A core belief of mine is that growth isn't necessarily tied to expansion. It's tied to dynamism. It's tied to disruption. So where are the changes taking place in society? Where are the ones that'll be that'll have the most profound implications over a very long time horizon. So structural changes like the internet or the cloud or cultural changes as well, things that last a really long time and whose implications might not uh, be really appreciated uh, in the time being, but will kind of compound over time. So give me an example of a cultural change that you invested in. 
that's a little harder to grasp, say. Than sure. Yeah, a, a lot is, I mean, if you think about the, the push that, that we've seen as a society around clean energy and the environment, you know, there's, there's obviously electric vehicles are an amazing product category. They're fun to drive. They have some iconic brands behind them that have really benefited from it. But you can trace back a lot of that trend towards a cultural shift that began decades ago and that has slowly sort of built from sort of an, an avant-garde of people who might have been really earth-friendly towards something much more mainstream and generational. So I think that's that's an, one example of a cultural ch uh, cultural change that is driving real business implications. Does that mean you invested in Tesla when it first went public or before that? Uh, my strategy invested in Tesla back in 2015 and have held it ever since. There's other strategies at Bailey Gifford that have invested at, at different points in time along the way. Okay, let's talk a little bit more about this notion of dynamism. And it's been a tough time for some of your funds and for managers like Bailey Gifford in the past couple of years as we faced headwinds such as rising interest rates, fears of a slowing economy, global turmoil, fiscal deficits, all kinds of things that have worked against the market, although we certainly are having a very nice fall. Um, so how do you balance the search for dynamism against some of these short to intermediate term challenges? Sure. Ultimately, we'll ask, is there, where is the dynamism? Is there dynamism and disruption still in the market? Uh, one of the, the, the reflections we had last year when much of the market was focused on things like inflation and the supply chain and geopolitical concerns, all for a very good reason, as long-term growth investors, we asked the question, well, what, what really matters if you're a long-term growth investor? And the, the answer to that for us was, well, are the engines of growth that have driven amazing opportunities for growth stocks and growth businesses really since 2008 over the last previous 14 years, are those engines still in place? If they are, what are they? How might they be changing? If, if they have petered out, then that's something we have to recognize and, and kind of have an intellectually honest moment looking at ourselves in the mirror. But after, after a, a, a studying it and really understanding where growth comes from and having an appreciation that it's tied ultimately to change, we came out of it really enthusiastic, again, with our time horizon, thinking there's more disruption and dynamism in the world today than ever. And that leads to really fantastic opportunities if you have the right time horizon and you pick the right companies. And, and how do you deal with um, long periods of underperformance? Because it seems like you, you know there's there's just a cycle in the markets where you know you'll have something like uh, I know you, you don't see really much of a distinction between value and growth, but the companies that you invest in might be out of favor for a while before picking up. How do you deal with that? Yeah, it, it starts with our uh, again our time horizon, but also looking at uh, starting with a fundamental. Uh, forward-looking hypothesis for every stock in the portfolio. So by that, I mean, okay, we might be dealing with a period of underperformance. Uh, what are the, if we dissect that, where is the underperformance coming from? Is it valuation compression? Uh, in which case, the next question is, well, where are we in that cycle? Um, or is the underperformance tied to fundamentals, actual revenue growth or margin compression or free cash flow, right? If the underperformance is coming from something fundamental, 
then that sets off another series of questions, which is, is this temporary or is it long-term? Is the long-term thesis broken? Or are we just in sort of a, a, a speed bump, a natural air pocket that might happen from time to time in cycles, but the long-term fundamental picture is, is as exciting as ever. So that's something that has been, we've spent a lot of time focusing on stock by stock over the last 18 months is where has the, the pain point been? Has it been valuation? Has it been fundamentals? And is it temporary or not? And it's really led to some some exciting conclusions and happy to get into a, a, a little bit of that, because I think right now is a really important moment in time, an interesting moment in time. When you think about the headwinds that, that growth stocks have faced in the last 18, 20 months and what's happening with fundamentals and, and perhaps valuation right now. Happy to elaborate uh, more on that, Lauren, Ben, if you'd like. Sure. I think we lost you for a minute there. So I'd be happy to have you elaborate on that. What is so interesting about the current moment to you? Sure. So we, I, I, I talked about the, the the different types of headwinds, right? One is valuation and the other, uh, I, I'd say two, are tied to fundamentals. Uh, I won't make a call on macro or what the Fed does next, but it would appear that we're nearing the end of a rate cycle. And when looking across our portfolio, a lot of the, the rapid growth companies, the stocks have derated uh, or had their valuations compressed by upwards of 60%. So that's a major headwind that I think is looking increasingly in the rearview mirror. And now we can let fundamentals do the talking. Now, importantly, the fundamental outlook, there were two things that have been going uh, against many of the growth stocks since uh, the, the, since the pandemic. One is a deceleration of growth. Right. So you had companies that were growing. I'll take Snowflake as an example, was growing north of 100 percent its revenues in 2021, sort of at the, the peak of of uh, that boom around COVID. That's decelerated down into the 30s. It's, it's hard for growth stocks to work facing that type of deceleration. The other is a downward estimate revision. Similarly, it's very difficult for stocks to do well when consensus estimates are continually being revised downward. And that has been the case for really the past year, year and a half. Now, if you look why I call it an interesting moment in time, if you look at the last two quarters or so, and this, is, this isn't the case across all growth stocks, but for, for many that we look at, the estimate revisions have stopped being revised downwards. In some cases, they're being revised upwards, and that's really exciting. So that, if it continues, can be the end of headwind number one. The second is... The, the base at which these estimate revisions have, are being um, uh, no longer reduced, they're really exciting growth figures. So as I said, Snowflake is still growing in the mid-30s on a top-line basis. If, if our estimate revisions had been revised down and down and down, and now they've stopped being revised down, but it was at a really boring level, then we might have a case that this thing was played out. But it's still growing at upwards of 30%. So I think those structural shifts that we started with at the beginning, Lauren, they're still very much in place. We shouldn't confuse decelerating growth and downward estimate revisions with the end of those structural shifts that we've been investing behind for so long. They're still in place and they're still really exciting. So Dave, I know that you're not a macro or top-down investor, um, but we do a lot of talking about uh, this in Barron's Live and also in our newsroom. And just curious, you know, we had a um, uh, a little buzz in the newsroom today because UBS put out a report saying that uh, they saw I think, seven to eight rate cuts this year and expect 1% by 2025. 
Um, I know you said that there's an end of the, you, it seems like it's an end of the cycle. Do you, um, um, do you see any, um, do, you, do you have a view on where rates might end up or how aggressive the Fed might be in those cuts? We, we do not. That said, I think when, when we look across the portfolio, and I, I mentioned that those engines of growth earlier about what has driven the great opportunities for the past 15 years, well, one of them clearly has been cheap access to cheap capital, right? Mm -hmm. um, or things like globalization or loose regulatory environment, things that may very well be ending. So when we look across the opportunity set, we have to acknowledge that if, if a company, if a business had been fully dependent on cheap capital or a, a, a really pristine economic environment, then that might not be the type of growth stock that is going to work now. So when we think about macro, we look at it through that lens. We see the need to invest in growth businesses that are much more resilient now than they might have been five or six years ago uh, in a different environment. Um, but again, ultimately, we think these structural trends that we're investing behind uh, can, uh, given the right company with the right competitive edge and the right business model and the right resilience, can really thrive regardless of what the rate environment does from here. So that's that's about where uh, that's the lens we look through when it comes to rates and where they might go. Um, I was curious, are there, are there types of companies that, um, that, that you've looked at and you thought maybe or that don't have that resilience? Did they come from particular sectors or anything like that? And where have you found that resilience or is it very stock specific? It's pretty stock specific. I mean, there, there's, there's certain pockets of, of the economy, obviously, where or, or certain categories that might be faring more difficult or might be having a more difficult time in a high rate environment, you know, things like housing or the car market, you know, Tesla has talked about um, headwinds that are natural. If rates are high, that your, your average monthly car payment is going to go through the roof. So um, that would be one example, but, but maybe the, 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 the better example is really just looking at a stock by stock, basis and looking at the resilience of the company, you know, do, do they carry a lot of debt? Do they generate positive free cash flow? Um, five years ago, they would have had a pass because of the, the macro backdrop on both those fronts. And that's the type of growth business that right now that that I don't think we would be comfortable making a, a, making an investment, just thinking that that environment from five years ago would return anytime soon. So things like balance sheet and free cash flow matter more than more than ever. Not that they ever didn't, but in this type of environment, they matter much more. Yeah, I mean, it seemed five years ago, you know, it, 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 for some investors, it might not have mattered that, uh, you know, they would just buy anything because that uh, the free money made uh, any business model uh, look uh, OK. Um, do, you, do you ever see it going back to that? And I guess I shouldn't say ever because that's a long time. But, um, you know, we, we've had this long period of basically free money. Do you see that something that comes back in five to 10 years or is that just a, a period that uh, it's going to take another set of extreme circumstances to? Yeah, I, I don't have a view on whether it'll come back or not. I do think it, it would likely take a set of extreme circumstances. I think the, the more, um, not the more relevant question, but, but the way that we think about it is if we're, if we're picking stocks from a bottom up per, uh, perspective for our portfolio and for our clients, then assuming we would return to that type of environment would be a mistake. Got it. Um, so question, let me uh, pivot a little bit. Uh, I know this uh, this weekend, I think, was Singles Day in, in China. And China was a place that people used to 
um, you know, see a lot of growth. Um, but if you look at the stocks, I like Alibaba um, has, you know, was down 6% this year. JD.com has been a, a lot worse than that. Are there still growth opportunities in China? So uh, I, I think there are, given my backdrop and, and the premise we're working from today uh, around where growth or, or where there's disruption, there's growth and where there's dynamism, there's, there's growth. So I think China, there's, there's plenty, right? Mm -hmm. Now, to be perfectly clear, uh, I focus only on North American equities. So right. I do not have a view on, on uh, anything specific in China or where those opportunities might be. But again, I really believe strongly in, in this notion that, that dynamism is what drives growth. So yesterday's, yesterday's winners in China, growth companies in China might not be tomorrow's. But if, but if the question is, are there great growth opportunities still, then the answer is most assuredly yes. Um, so let's talk about some of the most exciting disruptions that uh, animate your investing and how they're manifested in some of your largest holdings. Um, I know that the cloud is one, the internet yeah. is one, um, computing power. Could you talk a little bit about those? Yeah. So it's funny when, when folks ask what I'm most excited about, I almost blush a little bit and think what I'm about to say might initially sound really stale and really kind of long in the tooth because I start with the internet and the cloud. Uh, I think what's so exciting about those, however, is that they are disruptions that we don't yet have, we haven't yet grasped the ultimate implications of either of those two uh, disruptions. They are infrastructure changeouts for starters. They underpin the entire economy, our social structures, you name it. Infrastructure changeouts happen incredibly infrequently, and when they do, the implications are profound. But I wouldn't want to leave it just as the internet and the cloud, right? That does sound a bit stale. I think the characteristics inside of those two things is what excites me the most. And what I mean by that is they, they are hyper-connected. They're software-centric. Uh, they're underpinned by extraordinary compute power, unprecedented. And most exciting of all, they're data-collecting machines. So it's those four attributes that make the cloud and the internet disruptions. I, I think they're just going to beget more disruptions. And that's, that's what excites me. So AI is a perfect example. You know, it, it seems to have come out of nowhere. It's people call it a, a new paradigm shift. And I, I think it very, very well may be. It's a profound change, but it can also be viewed as a natural result and a natural evolution of those infrastructures that I just talked about that these infrastructures that have been put in place over the last few decades where compute power is so heavy, where the data that these things are collecting is, is so incredible, uh, that that's, that's what excites me the most. So I think the disruption is going to continue driven by those new infrastructures. So the things I get excited about, anything that involves a new data set that can address a new type of problem or a societal problem or even old problems in better ways, that excites me. So where data meets healthcare is interesting. AI is obviously interesting. Uh, how advertisers use data to better target audiences uh, excites me. And, and digitization of any tech-starved industry excites me as well. So I think that keep running. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I found it interesting right now just trying to figure out how, um, I mean, two, two areas stand out to me. You mentioned healthcare. Um, 
And one is just seeing these companies that did very well during the pandemic that are trying to push for push change within how we do healthcare seem to have a really hard time um, coming out. And going back to your previous points, do you see that as being something that's uh, just about, uh, is it about fundamentals? Is it about rates or something else? And the other area is um, in payments, where it seems like all these payment companies that popped up are just having a very hard time right now, and that the big banks that are out there are sort of consolidating their, their power. Yeah, I think I think we'd, we'd have to look at a case by case. So in every company that we look at, every company that we invest in, we put it through the same um, series of questions. And obviously, you can imagine that a lot of the questions will be about the, the long term prospects around the addressable market. How exciting is that? Another question um, that I think is is just absolutely critical, particularly if you have a long term time horizon is what is sustainable about this company's competitive advantage, right? So if, if you're a, a human company and you're competing against the bank, it might be a really tough one to build conviction in. Um, now, if, if I think one of the, the, you asked about healthcare as well, I think, you know, again, it would, it would depend company by company, but Moderna is one that we remain really enthusiastic about. The stock has obviously had a difficult time post pandemic. You know, the context here is that this, Moderna was was generating upwards of $18 billion in revenue in, in 2021 and 2022. That's down significantly as, as less people are getting vaccinated, which is understandable, and, and shares have been accordingly weak. But what happened during COVID is that that its platform, its, its technology was proven out, and, and its long-term prospects were significantly de-risked because of that. So when we think about what's possible with the Moderna platform long-term, and the competitive edge that it now has because it has de-risked this platform significantly increasing its likelihood of, to survive, which a lot of life science companies like that's goal number one is to survive and prove yourself out. It's done that. So it, it's, it's had a, 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 the stock is at a tough go of it for the last 18 months, but it's something that we, we remain incredibly excited about when we think about the long-term prospects, its technology, what it's proven out so far, and the, the potential use cases that, that its approach can be applied to. Tell us about Home Depot, what's ahead there? Well, it's a tough one. Um, you know, that it's a great company. We all know that. Um, it's it's not done very well this year. It's down uh, almost 8%. Um, it's been up uh, 12% over the past uh, three months, I think driven a lot by uh, yield, uh, yields coming down. The big question there is going to be um, what's happening with the housing market. People spend a lot of money um, when they move, and um, that helps boost uh, Home Depot and Lowe's. And um, there's a lot of concern that, um, you know, the, uh, that that's not happening right now because there's just not a lot of new home sales um, or, or even, I'm sorry, there's not a lot of new home sales, not a lot of existing home sales. Um, and so there's expectations that, uh, uh, you know, comps, uh, you know, coming down a little bit, uh, earnings uh, not being as strong as they were and operating margins, uh, you know, getting squeezed a little bit. And so what people really want to see is what does Home Depot have to say? about um about this period that we're in um and and how it's playing out um the, the good news on home depot is that uh you know because it hasn't performed well i don't think the bar is terribly 
high for the company. Um, and so I think any uh, optimism that it can express about the future would be good um, for, for the stock. Uh, Bank of America, for one, thinks that there could be some turbulence in the near term, but they do see uh, Home Depot and Lowe's, for that matter, being higher in 12 months. Um, the other one that's uh, the other two that are coming out, I should say, are uh, Target and Walmart. And they've been kind of the, uh, uh, you know, two sides of the same coin in this uh, um, in this market where Target has done very poorly. It's down 27 percent, trading near 52 week lows. Walmart is up 17 percent and trading near 52 week highs. Um, and uh, part of that is the difference in their businesses. Uh, Target is much more dis dependent on discretionary spending. Walmart uh, has more grocery, and that's been stronger um, overall. Um, and Target has also had uh, problems with uh, um, you know, some of the uh, being targeted for being, I hate to use the word, but for being too woke. Um, and that seems to have impacted things well. But I think a lot of it is just about them um, coming out of COVID without uh, um, which a little too much focus that, on believe the trends in what people are buying were going to continue, and that hasn't been the case, and still trying to work through that. Um, I do think that once they do work through all those issues, finally, there's going to be a huge move in the stock to the upside. It's just a question of when is that going to be and how is it going to happen? Um, again, I'm just looking at uh, through the research um, from the sell side, and um, Oppenheimer says that you know they think that uh, the current levels are pretty attractive if you're a long-term investor, um, and uh, they think that uh, um, it can uh, it can bounce, but it's going it may take some time. You know, Walmart is a little bit expensive, and that's the big issue for it here. Um, it's uh, trading around uh, 23 times. Um, which is pr a pretty de decent multiple for a, for a stock like it. But uh, it really does seem to have a strategy of bricks and clicks that is going, uh, bricks meeting clicks that is going quite well. Um, and that could push the stock uh, uh, up um, from earnings. Dave, um, I know that she wanted to ask you about two recent buys, one being uh, Samsara IoT and the other being Sprout Social SPT. Um, can you talk about either of those? Sure. So yeah, Samsara is a a play on the uh, the Internet of Things and AI. So they are digitizing the world of physical operations. Earlier, I mentioned that you know the the disruption and the digitization that the internet and the cloud bring are just going to find their way into more and more industries. And physical operations, so I'm, I'm talking about things like fleets and even manufacturing plants, digitizing, bringing data, the, the, the magic that comes with data and software to those industries can drive efficiencies, uh, can make them safer, can make them more sustainable. Uh, so Samsara, that's the value proposition Samsara is bringing to uh, its customers. The company is growing top line uh, over 40% when so many other software companies have, have slowed down post-COVID, it has a fantastic ROI proposition. And I think that's really landing with, with customers right now. And Ben, I think it's actually a, a great example of that point I made about dynamism is all you need for growth. One of my, one of my favorite examples is uh, a company called Infosys, which I'm, I'm sure you yeah. know of the Indian IT outsourcer. Yeah. Absolutely. So out of out of the 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 ashes of the internet bubble bursting back in uh, 2000 2001, Infosys went on, and, and many of its its Indian offshore outsourcer peers 
went on to grow its top line at a compound annual growth of roughly 40% for a decade. And that, that comes in a period where sort of the overall spending pie was shrinking, growth seemed stagnant, but there was underlying dynamism. There was a need for businesses to do more with less and save money. And sure enough, the Indian IT outsourcers came with that value proposition. So there was, there was dynamism. So similarly, I don't want to compare the, the past few years with the internet bubble, but while it seems like growth is getting harder and harder to come by, if you can provide fantastic uh, ROI for customers, then you can still grow really handsomely. So that's that's what Samsara is doing, doing right now. Um, Sprout Social is a social media management platform. So it's, it's sort of like a, uh, a control center from which a enterprise can manage its brand um, and communicate and analyze um, how its brand and how its messaging is done across many social media platforms. Um, what we like about it is this, you can imagine if you're, if you're a brand, you know, from PepsiCo to Johnson and Johnson and your, your brand is out there on more and more social networks, there's a lot of complexity. And, and so how you manage that brand, given the complexity and keeping abreast of what is said about your brand across all this, these platforms is a full-time job. So uh, Sprout Social is one platform that you can use that kind of collects what, all, what is happening to your brand across all these, these various social media platforms. So I think anytime I see complexity in a system, we like to look for the integration point uh, in that system as, as a really key leverage point that's going to increase in value and help a customer um, uh, address more of, of its problems through that one integration point that might exist across across these social networks. Got it. Um, and Dave, I'm going to take a few readers' questions now. Um, a, a couple of them, actually more than a couple, have focused on, on valuation rates and growth stocks. Um, you know, one pr person asked about the extreme, what they call an extreme high valuation of, of Snowflake. Um, another was just talking about uh, a stock that uh, waste management that we like a lot here at Barron's that uh, nice growth, solid dividend, but it's a 30 times PE. How do you think about valuation, especially at a time when the tenure is at 4.6%? Yeah, really good, good questions and relevant ones. So for us, and this is where I think if if I'm an investor with a significantly shorter time horizon than Bailey Gifford, than the one I have, the valuation of something like a snowflake might really make me pause. And I'm not suggesting that it, it you know, we don't scrutinize it, but the point about long-termism really matters a lot here. So any company that we have in the portfolio, uh, when it comes to uh, upside, and uh, what our return threshold, what, what do we demand from a return threshold? For my strategy, it's uh, a case that the, comp that the stock will appreciate two and a half times over five years. So we, when we think about valuation, we look five years into the future, um, make some assumptions about what might be possible for Snowflake's fundamental growth, its margin profile, its free cash flow um, generation, and we don't use the current price of sales multiple or PE multiple or whatever it might be. We think about what, what valuation would be required in five years for us to make two and a half times upside. 
Now, I, I love that you included waste management in your question because now I don't have a stake in waste management one way or the other, but you can imagine if I have a five-year time horizon and there's a, a business that's growing 30 to 40% uh, that I think you know is not going to decelerate rapidly over the next five years, then you can grow into a pretty uh, punchy multiple, current multiple over a five-year period such that you can generate two and a half times upside. If I'm looking at a, a business that might be sort of a, a, a compounder or a much lower growth profile, it's harder to grow into a punchy multiple. So I'm not going to compare waste management to Snowflake, but that's how we that's how we think about it. It's all done on a five year time horizon and the demands that we would require then as opposed to the current uh, PD multiple or price of sales multiple. Yeah, um, those two questions are from Lawrence and Lee and Hal has one that's kind of along those same lines is that is there a do you have a most important metric given the long term horizon? Is it return on equity? Is there a hurdle rate that you're using? We'll we'll use uh, in in that upside case that that we put every company through. We'll take a look at valuation through multiple lenses. I think you know ultimately we want to see um, a, a a price to free cash flow like things lead to that. I think everything else is really just a proxy for valuation. Like ultimately, we want to see free cash flow generation um, and and how the the stock would 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 be valued based on that. Now, if there's a, a, a relatively young company that is not generating a lot uh, cash right now, but we think it's it's unit economics are fantastic and its re return profile, whether ROIC or ROE or LTV to CAC, like all sorts of, of different um, lenses will apply to it. If we think those are attractive, then we think, okay, in five years time, what will the maturity of this company be? And what would the an appropriate valuation metric be then? It still might not be price to free cash flow. It still might be too early for that company. If we think a company's mm -hmm. growing 30% in five years, uh, and is still very early in growing into its long-term profitability profile, then even at a price-to-free cash flow basis, it might look exorbitantly expensive. But we think, again, taking that long-term approach, this is something that will grow into the valuation that is really exciting right now, that in, in five years, even the street won't be demanding a, a, a low price-to-free cash flow multiple. It might be a price-to-sales multiple. So we'll, we'll take a look in... in um, it really depends case by case which metric is most appropriate, but ultimately we'd love to see it um, uh, up, grow into something reasonable on a, on a free cash flow basis. Um, so we're running out of time here, but I want to hit you very quickly with three more questions. One is uh, from Stu. He was asking about cybersecurity growth. Is that an area that you're looking at? Uh, yeah. I mean, it's, it is a very attractive area to go uh you know to to hunt for growth um businesses it's it, it, i start from uh, one of my starting points in looking for any growth opportunity is like what are the big problems being faced in the world or by the typical enterprise where the problems exist that will typically be where the value is and, and where companies can add value and then grow so security is absolutely one of them um, it has been historically really difficult to find security companies with a really durable competitive edge. It's not impossible, but that has made 
in, in my history as an investor, the attraction to, to security hasn't always been manifested in a lot of actual uh, amazing businesses to, to invest behind. Now, one that we do have a position in, and I think is, is really interesting, it's, it's tied to security. It's not purely a security company, it's Cloudflare. Mm-hmm. Um, so that, that would be uh, one area where we do have some exposure to security. Okay. And then um, Mike was asking about uh, semiconductor companies um, that y- you have so many tech companies are now designing their own chips and then outsourcing to Samsung or Taiwan Semi. Um, what does it mean for everybody else besides like the NVIDIA um, of the world who uh, it looks like is going to dominate uh, um, uh, dominate AI for a while? Yeah, I think when I think of semis, I, I think First off, it's, it's an incredibly attractive backdrop, depending on what your return hurdles might look like. You know, the world is becoming more digitized and with digitization comes the need for more semiconductors. So it's, it's a very attractive area. But if I'm looking for an, uh, two and a half times upside over five years uh, and, and then growth beyond that out to 10 years, it's a pretty punchy growth rate that I'm looking for. So I want to find the end markets where semiconductors are growing more than the industry average, you know, in, in areas that are um, particularly, you know, growing much faster than, than the industry average. So that's what makes NVIDIA particularly attractive to us. It's, it's one that we've owned for years. And it's, it's you know, to say it's outgrowing the semiconductor industry is, is obvious. Yeah. Um, but that's when I, when I look at semis, I start with what are the end applications and how exciting are they? And then you, you would, you know, obviously need to get into, and and what is the competitive edge of this company and kind of look at the puzzle through that kind of the full mosaic. And, and again, for us, it means, can this be an outlier company? Can it be two and a half times, uh, upside in five years, as opposed to, you know, a solid semiconductor company that might be growing eight to 10% per year. And it's a great business, but it might not be for us. Um, Virginia was asking about Luminar for autonomous driving, but I'm going to expand that. Are there stocks that you do like for autonomous driving and how does that fit into the auto ecosystem? There is not, for, for our strategy, we don't have anything specifically toward autonomous driving um, beyond you know, NVIDIA just for it's, it's kind of being a key part of the infrastructure for anything around AI. Um, we also have exposure to autonomous driving, but, but not directly through Tesla. Uh, and also uh, we have a position in Rivian uh, on the electric vehicle front. So when you think about their long-term distant future, autonomous driving is, is likely part of it. But as far as a pure play on autonomous driving, um, I don't have anything to share today. Okay. Um, well, thank you uh, so much for this. And again, apologies for Lauren's uh, technical difficulties. Tomorrow, instead of Barron's Live, uh, Barron's will be hosting a special virtual live event at noon, Barron's Roundtable Planning a Secure Retirement. You can register for this event at barrons.com forward slash events or the, the link that Crystal is going to put into the chat. Lauren will be moderating a panel on generating income in retirement, and my colleague, Elizabeth O'Brien, will be moderating a discussion of retirement planning at every stage uh, and every age. Um, this is the first Barron's Roundtable event of our current fiscal year. We're excited about it and hope you could join us and be part of the conversation. Thanks for being here. Be well and have a great day.
The energy transition is a long and winding road, and it needs to be taken step by step. Learn more at SiemensEnergy.com.